Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice. I'm your host, Cody Morris, and today I'm going to be talking with Mitch Freiling about his paper, Constructs, Events, and Acceptance and Commitment Training. Mitch received his PhD from the University of Nevada, Reno, and his bachelor's and master's degrees from Western Michigan University. He is currently the Interim Associate Dean and Professor in the Charter College of Education at California State University, Los Angeles. Mitch has published many articles and book chapters, is the current editor of the Psychological Record, and serves on the VCS board for ABAI. Without further ado, here's my interview with Mitch Freiling. Hi, Mitch, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here and looking forward to it. Thanks. We're excited to talk about your paper, Constructs, Events, and Acceptance and Commitment Training. But before we do, we always like learning a little bit about our uh, interviewee or our guest. And so would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and, and what your current role is? Sure. Um... Well, my, as far as my background goes, um, I'm from Michigan and stumbled into Western Michigan University. And um, that was sort of where I got exposed to behavior analysis, as um, some know, behavior, Western Michigan has a pretty strong behavior analysis program. So I got a bachelor's and master's degree at Western Michigan University and then made my way to the University of Nevada, Reno. More behavior analysis there. Uh, And yeah, just kept loving the field more and more, the more I learned. Um, I got a job, currently I'm working at California State University, Los Angeles. I'm actually, uh, interim associate dean right now. I, before that, I was the chair of special education and counseling, and before that, I was working uh, specifically in our applied behavior analysis program, which is uh, one of the counseling programs here at Cal State LA. So that's sort of my role or a little short history, I suppose. Um, yeah, pretty interested in interbehavioral psychology and kind of how we can infuse interbehavioral thinking and behavior analysis. And I've, something that I got into in graduate school, especially in Reno, and I've just stayed interested in it and keep seeing opportunities um, to improve behavior analysis with interbehavioral thinking. So that's, that's where I'm at. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realize you were from Michigan. I knew you went to Western Michigan University from the information you sent over, which is where I went as well. What part of Michigan are you from? Grand Rapids. Okay, cool. Nice. Southwest. I'm from, I'm originally from Northern Michigan, uh, Northwest Michigan. Okay. Yeah. Small world. Yeah. (laughs) And then you've been interested in interbehavioral psychology for a while. Is that partly what drew you to University of Nevada, Reno, or did you become interested in that sort of area once you got there and started studying behavior analysis at that school? You know, I didn't know what interbehaviorism was before I went to the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, So I can't say that's why I went there. Um, But of course, I did know Um, you know, I knew some of the things that the faculty and students were interested in that program. And that certainly caught my attention and, and 
that's probably why I went there in a more broad sense. But no, I took a class on interbehaviorism from Linda Hayes. And actually, um, it sort of blew my mind, I guess. I mean, not to say something, but yeah, it just sort of, what I thought, I, I don't know, what I thought behavior analysis kind of, moments when I felt kind of stuck as far as how to explain things or conceptualize things, I, interbehaviorism just sort of unstuck me. <laughs> and, and, and I still feel that way that it, it, it's a broader, um, you know, way of thinking about things. So to, I guess to go back to your question and not carry on, um, I got interested in it there and really, really um, dove pretty hard into it once I was in school uh, in Reno and um, yeah, have stayed, stayed on it um, since then. And I think that's a pretty good segue into the topic of your paper, which is primarily looking at acceptance and commitment training from the perspective of the intrabehavioral psychology and, and the concepts related to that. And we've been obviously talking a little bit around the idea of intrabehavioral psychology, but I suspect many of the listeners may not be super familiar with the topic. And I don't want to push us down too far of a rabbit hole. And I think <laughs> you would probably agree we could have an entire podcast, if not a series of podcasts focused yeah. specifically on this topic, but could we, could we maybe just do a surface level review or sort of introduction to this concept to, to help the, the listeners get their footing? Sure. You know, interbehaviorism is a, um, is J.R. Cantor's approach to the philosophy of science as a whole, not just regarding what we're interested in and behavior and, you know, the science of psychology. And, you know, it shares many similarities with what most people assume as the philosophical assumptions of behavior analysis um, with the important, um, I guess, distinction or uniqueness that it is, in my view, more thorough and more explicit. Um, and, and so actually the, you know, I, as far as interbehaviorism goes, it is a, a philosophy of science and it's, it, it's quite compatible with behavior analysis, um, with the exception that I think it goes a lot into a lot more detail, um, and considering my interests, as I mentioned earlier, I think it could help behavior analysis quite a bit um, uh, in that sense. So that's interbehaviorism. But by the as you mentioned, there are a lot of things within that that um, are really um, distinct um, and important that warrant their own consideration. But that's that's interbehaviorism. So you know, for example, how do we relate to like a science of biology or something, you know, and there are some explicit assumptions about that and kind of articulations of how that would look potentially um, in interbehaviorism. And interbehavioral psychology is specifically focused on the subject matter of behavior. And as you know, it's called interbehavior, and that's not a... Um, random thing, right? Um, there's a specific focus on, you know, stimulation and responding being one thing in interbehaviorism. And rather than kind of the more traditional linear sequence, there's more of an event feel to how we conceptualize things. And then probably most popular, you know, the most popular part of interbehavioral psychology, um, as far as behavior analysis goes is of course the field construction of what we're even studying and that it's uh, much more dynamic um, integrated non-causal um, 
multi-factored. I mean, maybe I'm saying some words that are sort of synonymous with each other, but um, uh, way of thinking about what we study. And to me, that opens up the door for us to look at other parts of what's going on when, when we look at people's behavior and try to understand it. I think that's part of the paper, so we may have a chance to articulate, uh, dive into that part a little bit more. But yeah, that's a very, very broad um, overview, I guess, of interbehaviorism and interbehavioral psychology. You're doing a perfect job segueing yourself into these <laughs> questions. So <laughs> okay. I'm supposed to be teeing you up for information. You're <laughs> teeing my questions up perfectly. So, so thank you for that. In your paper, you mention that acceptance and commitment training is increasing in popularity within the ABA community. More and more practitioners are starting to look at how they can apply the concepts or the practice of acceptance and commitment training into the work that they do. You even mentioned the sort of relatively recently rebranding of acceptance and commitment therapy to acceptance and commitment training, which uh, refers to focuses of acceptance and commitment training that are not focused on psychotherapeutic circumstances. Could you provide some examples or give us an idea as to what non-psychotherapeutic applications of acceptance and commitment training might look like? Sure. Um you know, by the way, I'm no expert in acceptance and commitment training. Um, and I, I can only kind of talk about it indirectly as far as what I know about what other people are studying. But, you know, uh, that using um, some of the techniques from acceptance and commitment therapy, while you're um, consulting with a parent or a teacher to improve implementation of a um, plan, you know, when, when they're working with their child, for example, that, of course, there would be difficult, um, you know, emotions that might come up while that's happening, um, and that, that some of these techniques might be relevant to that work also, um, and kind of expanding what might be considered ABA to be, I think, and again, I don't want to speak on behalf of a group that I might not necessarily be a part of, but expanding what, um, you know, what applied behavior analysis looks like um, a bit um, and kind of less of maybe the more traditional kind of way of doing ABA. That's helpful. In terms of behavior analysts, picking up more and more of the act conceptualizations and, and in sort of practical applications, you talk about one potential complication that may arise is that there are concepts, terms within act that maybe have perceived incongruities or, or at the very least be very unfamiliar to behavior analysts. Could you give an example or examples of, of some of those terms or concepts that, that may arise that may start to make behavior analysts uncomfortable? Sure. Well, I think, you know, the word mindfulness might itself might you know, I mean, kind of be a complicated experience for behavior analysts. I don't know. I, I think behavior analysts are probably trained to... Uh, you know, the word mind is not something that um, we use um, in our practice, you know, for all the reasons that many, you know, many behavior analysts are very familiar with, right? That's a hypothetical construct. It's, you know, alleged to explain what we do. It's, you know, it's no one's ever actually studied it because it has no substance and, you know, so I think it can be confusing when suddenly you're like at an ABAI or wherever, you know, some behavior analytic conference and you're attending a workshop on using mindfulness 
in ABA, you know, someone might say, what's happening right now? Like, you know, and I do think a little of that has happened, that people have wondered that, you know, like, what's going on? You know, are we, so that's just one term, you know, there are other, that there are lots of terms in that whole kind of world that um, are different and that doesn't mean bad, um, but they could certainly cause confusion. I think another one is cognitive diffusion. Well, I think a lot of behavior analysts are probably confused. Like, why are we doing something that's called cognitive? Aren't we specifically not cognitive? You know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, I think, yes, people are very, you know, here we are already talking about two things, I think. One, people would like to have ABA be more comprehensive and they would like tools and ways of working um, that, you know, I, I mentioned the consultation, you know, consultation is incredibly important in applied behavior analysis. A lot of what applied behavior analysts do, you know, involves people who work with or live with who are a part of the lives of the clients that we work with. So I understand that, you know, there's this desire for applied behavior analysts to kind of learn how to navigate that work um, better. And then at the same time, it's like all this new stuff that seems sort of like, I don't know, might be a bit of an, at, at minimum confusing, at worst, maybe even kind of a knee jerk, you know, no kind of um, reaction to. You bring up a good point about the consultation. I think in this special issue focused on acceptance and commitment and training, a lot of the other articles, and maybe your article as well, talk about traditional ABA as largely being focused on arranging direct acting contingencies to, to favor adaptive, appropriate um, behaviors that are going to help enable people to be more independent. But oftentimes, to arrange something like that, we have to be able to navigate a very complex environment that's going to require us to be able to communicate effectively with, with caregivers or uh, other colleagues or sort of related services, get their buy-in, get their feedback, navigate that whole thing. And uh, you know, encourage people to implement the plan, all those sort of factors that sort of are required to do something as straightforward or something that is, is perhaps the, the easier part of what behavior anal analysts do, which is arrange direct contingencies, because that's what we're primarily trained to do. But there's a lot of other moving parts that we have to be comfortable with and perhaps tools like acceptance and commitment training and, and, and other tools brought out from the other sort of psychological disciplines may be useful in, in navigating a lot of that, certainly. In terms of, of bridging the understanding of acceptance and commitment terms from a behavior analytic perspective, you offer the interbehavioral framework to sort of break down some of the again, terminology and concepts within, within ACT. And you start your sort of frame of your paper, the majority of your paper off looking at constructs and events and how interbehaviorists view constructs and events. Could, could you talk about that? Sure. I think the, um, by the way, this is something that I'd say is unique to interbehaviorism, this kind of explicit um, distinction between constructs, which is a maybe word that could be simplified to mostly terms or, you know, procedures, kind of things that we develop, and events being the thing that we're interested in. So, you know, we're interested in understanding the 
full complexity of what people do, you know, and functional relationships. But, you know, then we have a bunch of constructs like reinforcement or, you know, an act. We, you know, in this paper, I'm kind of referring to all of the constructs in that literature, but that it's important that we distinguish and not distinguish to dismiss, but just to remember that <laughs> this is a term about the thing that you're interested in. It isn't the thing that you're interested in. It's a term about that. And actually, that's a really great um, lesson, I think, for all behavior analysts, because, you know, everything is sort of like that, right? You're using a particular technique, but you're not just interested in the technique, you're interested in the full complexity of that individual's life, you know, how to use it and how it fits with everything else, right? So don't get confused about, you know, what you're interested in and, and what you're maybe talking about or, you know, the technique that you're using. Could you provide an example? Could be from ACT applications, could be from traditional ABA applications where you might see the use of a construct? Well, it reminds me of almost, you know, it reminds me of any time someone is using a technique. So I don't know, um, let's say of some exercise from the ACT world or um, any technique from the ABA world, I suppose, without a consideration of everything else that's going on, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to give a specific, I guess, example of the situation, but where it doesn't, I don't wanna say connect, but it, it doesn't work. It kind of seems unrelated to what, what's being experienced. Um, or what's happening. And I think that that happens because people are forgetting that <laughs> they're not actually interested in that technique or that thing. They're interested in this much more complicated thing over here. But you just did this thing in kind of a rote um, way as though, you know, as though implementing, let's say, BST or something. BST by itself is going to make the situation better. It's only going to make the situation better if it's in consideration of everything else that's happening, right? It's, it's don't confuse <laughs> what you're doing and, and how you talk about it with the, the larger, I think, and, and more interesting event or subject matter that you're interested in don't you know, lose the forest for the trees right sure maybe yeah i think <laughs> that works yeah yeah happens a lot though i i actually i i am um, i am surprised by how often i find myself interested in this distinction because i've written about it before and other um other in the context of other topics, but it also happens, you know, I remember a paper that my colleague Linda Hayes wrote, or maybe it was a book chapter. Um, I think it was a book chapter some years ago, but, it, and it was about the equivalence literature and, you know, careful not to confuse how you study something, in this case, match to sample arrangements and all that, with the thing that you're interested in, mm. right? <laughs> You know, and that happens a lot too, right? Where, where we, we get confused with some sort of construction related to the thing that we're interested in and the thing that we're interested in itself. Yeah, so, fascinating. I, I avoided your question a little bit, but I rambled <laughs> for a while, so maybe it worked. <laughs> no, I, I think it is helpful. In the paper, you, you contrast constructs with events specifically could you could you talk about how those two concepts or, or terms are related and different well because re remember the constructs are are about the event 
or related to it, but they're not it. And so, you know, I guess at times people have pushed and said, well, events are constructs too, and everything has to be a construct. Otherwise we can't say anything at all. Or That's fair. Um, that's fair. But I think we just have in behavior analysis and in any time when we start using a bunch of terms and start talking about things in particular ways to remember that that's just a way of talking about it. And that's just part of what's going on here, right? So that happens with reinforcement too, right? Where it's overly kind of, you know, thought to explain everything, you know, for example, and like everything else. Okay, well, you know, slow down a little. Yes, when you did that, yes, the rate of behavior did change. And okay, yes, yes, yes. But, you know, that's it's not everything, right? So it happens a lot um, where I think we get, I guess, an, another way of saying is we might get attached or, yeah, confused um, by how we use terms in our field. That makes sense. You also talk about construct development and construct use to, I guess, further yep. reflect on this, the, the issue with constructs and how they might relax, uh, relate to acceptance and commitment training and in ABA. Can you talk about their development and their use? Sure. So actually, we've sort of been talking about their use a bit and so far, right? That, you know, how we can confuse things, you know, and once once a construct is developed, how we continue using it. And I think the, the thing that to take away from that and that I like about this distinction, um, so I guess I'm answering the second part first here, is that to be just be very sensitive, um, you know, the implication I think for, um, for people in the field is that sensitive that when you talk about something, you're just talking about something in that particular way for this particular issue, kind of, um, and that it's not, you know, it's not everything. Um, but construct development, the first part there is kind of about how we start, you know, how we come about to talk about or study something in a particular way in the first place. Um, and, you know, Interbehaviorism um, and uh, J.R. Cantor's work really emphasizes that our constructions of things should be derived from what's from events. There should be a very tight, while there's a distinction between constructs and events, and we've been talking about that a bit, that the constructs should be closely related to events. So the more they're not, um, and the more that constructs are developed on the basis of some other thing, um, the more concerning they could be because of course they carry the, the history and implications of that with them um, when they are used. And I think that probably gets closer to some of the kind of perhaps reaction uh, behavior analysts might have, for example, with a term like mindfulness, right? It's not quite derived from, right, from a close study of what's happening because of course, if we studied what was happening, we wouldn't end up using a term that's specifically referencing something that's never been contacted by anyone. So, you know, that that's not to say I'm against that term. I think that term is here and that's totally fine. Frankly, I think there are lots of good outcomes to be pointed to um, regarding all of that. But then it's more about careful, what are we really you know, studying when we study that? And um, how, how does that look when it's happening in the context of someone's life that is very unique and specific? So yes, construct development is kind of one thing about how we start, you know, how, how uh, terms, procedures, everything that we do with respect to the subject matter develops. 
and interbehaviorism is reminding us um, to try to keep that as close to the event and as possible so that you could really, really um, make it less likely that your constructions carry with it some, um, some things that I think as natural scientists, um, you might not want to have carried with it. For example, all the mentalistic stuff that behavior analysts aren't usually too fond of. <laughs> do you bring up, in this paper, do you bring up constructs as, as something to be wary of because the realm that acceptance and commitment training and therapy live in is perhaps easier to accidentally create constructs that are not reflective of the actual events, maybe more so than traditional ABA because it's, you know, traditional ABA more so working with public events that are maybe easier to verify or just at least get agreement of it and that kind of thing? Sure, I think, I think that can happen. I think people can start to talk about something and then, well, it turns out the whole world is talking about that thing, sort of, um, but they're all talking about it in a different way and um, based upon different um, assumptions. And it starts to sort of, uh, you wonder what the difference is between the two ways that those things are being used uh, or terms. And it, you could sort of see something sort of sliding. Um, I don't know what it slides into. And I don't, I don't want to say that that's happening necessarily, but um, yeah, I, you know, I think this is an interesting topic. Um, and I think that is the point that um, we wanted to make in this paper is that this is uh, something for people to be aware of, um, less, um, less of a statement about what will happen if, I don't know, like, you know, things are complicated. And <laughs> there are probably lots of good reasons to use terms that are familiar also I don't know um, so certainly new and different as you said though than different from all of the terms that people are used to as far as you know extinction and you know discriminative stimulus is different from an s delta you know and all of the mo's and you know it seems like wait what no yeah <laughs> yeah it's certainly different um, but potent, like you said, but potentially useful, right? Uh, but it is a balance. You, you talk a lot about, again, the, the, the idea of constructs and how that's an important interbehavioral psychology concept. You also talk about some other important interbehavioral conceptualizations that, that may be relevant and, and helpful to consider and the realm of acceptance and commitment training. For example, you talk about diagramming bidirectionality of stimuli and responses and, and how that might be tied in. Could you talk about some of the other important interbehavioral concepts that may be at play here? Sure, well, I, um, you know, speaking of staying close to the event, as close as you can, um, I have found that um, the more I try to understand behavior, the more the interbehavioral field construct, it's a construct, by the way, as we're just talking about also, um, seems to help to capture the complexity of what we're interested in understanding. And, you know, that does involve the double-headed arrow between stimulation and responding that is kind of fundamental to interbehaviorism or interbehavioral psychology, I should say now, right? That their stimulation and responding happen as an event. Um, 
I'm not saying something now and then later you're hearing me, for example, you, I'm speaking and you're hearing at the same time. It's, a, it's an event, right? Um, and, and that that event, uh, that, that stimulation and responding is a functional relationship. There's no cause there, by the way, There's, it's just a function that we're studying, but that it, it is a part of a field that includes you know, setting conditions, history, you know, it includes all of this. And, and implied that, and implied in that is that um, all of those things, if it's an event, all of those things are equally important. Um, so we wouldn't view something as being more important or causal or something that would, um, so, you know, in, in, in traditional ways of thinking about the subject matter and behavior analysis, especially kind of contingency thinking, well, the reinforcer is the big deal. Um, you know, it's a really big deal. It gets, uh, so it gets a lot of attention as a, you know, talk about uh, implications of how we talk about things. It gets a lot of attention in research. It gets a lot of attention in practice because it is a thing that is talked about in a particular way in behavior analysis, right? So talking matters, it, it impacts what we do. Um, so I, I think that thinking about the subject matter of behavior analysis or behavioral psychology or whatever you want to call it as being a multi-factored field um, seems to be more helpful. Um, there are lots of nuances within this. I don't know how into it you want me to get. Um, I don't know. I should ask you if you have any follow-up questions. Maybe yeah, I, I say, yeah, keep going. Uh, this is, this is great. Okay. Um, because, you know, another thing that I could talk about the field for, um, a while, but in in the kind of field construct you know it's written out as you know in the the kind of formula that's in the paper you know it says sf for stimuli you know i mean stimulus function and rf you know response functions and and that's not too I think a lot of behavior analysts, when they hear function, they think of attention, escape, and kind of um, the uh, functions that are popularized within the functional analysis uh, of problem or challenging behavior kind of literature. But, you know, here it, it's kind of about the psychological um, functions of that stimulus and or response. And and in that, that those, why it's important to, to distinguish, to, to emphasize this F part of that is that um, the functions of something are different than the physical properties of it. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of behavior that behavior analysts have a difficult time explaining or they have to really kind of um, extend some concepts, let's say. Um, <laughs> it are instances where uh, a stimulus has functional properties that are distinct from its object properties. Um, and they require a analysis of one's history with respect to that stimulus that is not always immediately apparent to um, either a clinician or a researcher or whoever, short of developing a kind of shared understanding or relationship with that person such that you would, you would um, understand that. So, you know, I think, by the way, that's one of the I don't know, I was gonna say maybe 10 things about interbehaviorism that really just stick with me that once you really can 
once you distinguish between the physical properties of things and the functional properties of things, then, and you kind of get an understanding of how psychological functions develop and you know what, what Cantor calls stimulus substitution, how one thing might substitute for another, for example, or kind of carry with it the functions of something else. Then a lot of stuff that really opens the door for understanding a lot of, you know, kind of memories, daydreaming, you know, just all sorts of things that just aren't super easy to, or, or the, the, the usual behavior analytic interpretations kind of seem like, yeah, I guess, I don't know, but sort of, maybe kind of thing. So I think a lot of what's happening in ACT um, involves substitute stimulation. And I think a lot of people who are interested in ACT, well, maybe I'm being more optimistic. I don't know. I, maybe I only talk to people. Who have, but when, when they're exposed to interbehavioral thinking and that part of the interbehavioral field, they also, yeah, that's sort of what's happening in ACT. Right, we're dealing with kind of substitute simulation here. Um, and that seems to me, I guess, talking about constructs, you know, kind of going back to the overarching thing here, seems to keep us closer to things um, than other ways of talking about it. But I don't know. I've talked for a long time now. So. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate all that. It was a lot of really important content that you talked about. I think emphasizing that in behavior analysis and inter-behavior analysis or interbehavioral psychology, there's more uses of the term function that I think a lot of behavior analysts typically think of, which I think the concept of function has largely shrunk over the years. I think, you know, Skinner talked about function and he wasn't talking about necessarily the like uh, functional reinforcers that, that we often think of it, as you said, attention, tangible, escape, and, and automatic. Those are classes ultimately of common functions associated typically with problem behavior, right? Um, but function as a term essentially talks about, as you, as you said, the, the, the effect of that behavior in the world. And so we can talk about any, anything as having a function. You can talk about a, a sink or a faucet as having a function, right? If I were to describe the form of a sink, I would say, it's some sort of typically metal tube that comes out that has knobs that will, you know, uh, that can be turned, right? That's, that's a physical form of it. But what is the function of a sink? It's to produce water, right? And we can apply that same idea to behavior where you can physically describe a behavior, but it may not necessarily be reflective of, of the function. Why is that behavior occurring, right? So why would something like self-harm occur? Right. If we see self-harm, we can make assumptions about, yeah, well, that, you know, I guess trigger warning related to self-harm. If we see a person like cutting themselves, well, they're, they're cutting themselves to harm themselves. Well, you're, <laughs> that's just describing the form. Well, why are they doing, what is the function of that behavior? And if we're talking about typically developing individuals with large verbal repertoires, the, the controlling variables of those behaviors can be very complex and, and it can be well beyond uh, what people typically think of within those functional reinforcement classes. Or at the very least, it's an extreme nuance of some of those because you can go, yeah, well, it's automatic. Well, okay, automatic is a humongous category. All of those classes are giant umbrella terms, right? How many different types of reinforcers are associated with automatic or attention or escape for that matter, right? Is it 
for escape? Is it getting a break from something? Is it getting completely out of doing something? Is it getting help with doing something? There are so many little offshoots. And that's only on the consequence side, which you said, you know, as a matter of practice, we tend to potentially overemphasize in many situations. There are other uh, types of stimulus behavior interactions that are important beyond behavior consequence, which is certainly uh, an important idea here. I will say, even in these contexts where, um, you know, like, I guess thinking of how, how the the field construct has con- and continues to kind of, I, I continue to advocate for it because even in these sort of um, contexts where, oh, we found out automatic reinforcement or we found out um, attention or something in a functional analysis. And I actually, I think, by the way, I'm all about that work. Um, and I know that it is associated with, um, you know, positive outcomes that in the past, you know, other techniques would be used that would cause lots of other problems. So I'm not, this is, this is just to explain the field construct, but the more I think about a lot of situations like that, where an FA is done or something, and I ask myself, and I ask caregivers and people working with client, what is their social life like? Um, do they have play skills? Um, should we be thinking about, and I guess what I'm saying is I just start thinking, we're looking at this in a very narrow way and it doesn't occur that way. There, the, lives of every, the lives of everyone are very complicated and, 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 you know, I, I can't help but wonder, well, and then it turns out, oh, well, actually, they, they don't actually play with very, you know, they don't have access to very many reinforcers, they, they actually don't do, okay, well, why don't we, I wonder if rather than doing this um, intervention that would be prescribed based on the traditional outcome of a functional analysis, could we be more comprehensive and more helpful to this person if we thought about what's happening in a more multi-factored field sort of way. And I can't help but think that that would be the case. So I actually understanding the field, it's useful to contrast the field construct with what is traditionally um, interpreted as a functional analysis and behavior analysis because it is an outcome of a very causal way of thinking. We will find the function because the function is the cause. And once we find the cause, then we can fix it is sort of how you know that goes. But there are multiple functions. A function is a relationship. It's not a, you know, it's just a relationship between two things. So we could find there are all sorts of things that are participating in the situation. And, and we could, the, the scope of what sort of support is provided could really become more broad. Um, I don't know, I've, you know, I've thought about that here and there, but um, I wish there was some way for that to land where, yes, this is a useful model, clearly, but remember, those are that's just a model. <laughs> you know, don't confuse it with everything. Um, happens a lot. Clearly, it's something that I really care about because I'm carrying on about it quite a bit. Sorry for that. <laughs> no, I love it. And I think it ties into one of the sections of your paper, which is the conceptual implications for practitioners. So beginning to tie some of this together, what do you see as being the primary important conceptual implications that, of acceptance and commitment training for behavior analysts? I think if, you know, there are some techniques and things there that are helpful, I think it's important to remember um, that 
those are a part of a, as we've said, you know, in the earlier parts of the paper, that um, that those are parts of a interbehavioral field, and that they should be used in a very individualized, unique um, manner that is sensitive to the complexities of that situation, and to not, um, you know not assume that throwing a worksheet at some, not that you would literally throw a worksheet, but putting a work, giving someone a worksheet on their values would suddenly change everything. Like it, it might be part of a larger effort and, you know, collaboration with someone to, you know, make some changes in their, in, in their life or in a situation, but just to, you know, I, I think that the topic of constructs, again, hopefully brings us close, you know, reminds us that it's the event that we're interested in and actually come to think of it, that event is typically conceptualized in a way that is not as comprehensive as I think uh, the subject matter warrants, that, that the lives of the people that we work with uh, warrant that. So, you know, the implications, I. I think, you know, I can remember telling students too, you know, you can hang on to all your terms. You can, you can keep all of that. You can keep, but remember they are terms. <laughs> They're terms and techniques and they are used in a context. And so they, they are the context. They are, so it kind of, uh, you know, sort of humbles the the practice a bit that, okay, this is one thing, let's stay curious. Um, what else is going on here? Oh, this is occurring in a context where this and this and this is also happening and that's probably related. Let's try to, you know, that, that, that can be brought to what um, ABA is doing and it can become a little bit less, you know, I don't wanna say mechanical, but maybe how we talk some ways makes it seem that way. You know, that it's like, oh, you do this, 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 and then this happens. It's like, well, you know, only if this and not, not in that situation and, and not if you said, did you say that? I mean, that would never work, you know, like it. So I think there, there are lots of implications and maybe I'm being broad and not specific, but I think of the general orientation and focus on the event, um, there are lots of implications of that. And, you know, I think we say in this paper that even to the extent that, you know, we don't find ourselves even talking about private events like behavior analysts do, because once I can talk about, you know, substitute stimulation, I can talk about things that way, then, Actually, when you have a shared history with someone, I, the what the so-called private events aren't very private because you are interacting with them yourself. The the, the same the same substitute stimulation. So you know it's probably another whole thing, but you know I I have talked about, and, and so has my mentor, Linda Hayes talked about, you know, observing people thinking and, you know, really, um, you know, the kind of situation when someone is not, you know, lying to you or something, but like they say, they're not lying. And you're like, well, I've, I've known you for 15 <laughs> years, you know, <laughs> yeah. so um, I think it's a, there are lots of implications and, and I think that they, um, in particular for practice, which I, I hope I've pointed out a little bit in our interview. Certainly. And I really appreciate the emphasis on the importance of context and context mattering uh, in practice and when utilizing any tools, conceptual or practical, I think that it can be appealing to see potentially some of the, the, the act tools 
or any other tools within behavior analysis as being the shiny new toy, right? And, oh, I've, I got this new concept or tool or idea. I'm going to do it with every client in every situation. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pumped the brakes. Those things may be extremely useful, but you need to understand the context in which you're going to use it in and when it would be appropriate and really how it connects with everything else because it's all much more complicated than that. Yeah. And our research practices, you know, I, I have a sense, or maybe it's just my optimism that this is improving, but I think sometimes the way we do research is purposely to narrow it. You know, that's sort of what you have to do, or we, the way it's set up, at least in our field, is that you really want to have it be tight and, you know. But those things that are confounds or whatever are actually really important um, and they occur every day. So I think, you know, there are lots of kind of large field related, you know, discipline related issues related to um, this, but I almost, you know, we have to start bringing the context into our research though, I guess is what I'm saying, because, um, if we don't, then the outcomes of that research will always not, we, it, it won't inform context. You know, if, if everything is related to the larger context, then and if, and if research is trying to get rid of, or not get rid of it, but the practices require us to quote control for it, then, then that's a little bit of a dilemma, I think. But. Yeah, and that's a good call to action, I think, for behavior analytic researchers. Yeah, we are getting close to our time. I'd be respectful of your time, and okay. so I'd be remiss if I didn't get the the opportunity to ask you if you have other recommendations for for readings or resources for people interested on this topic. In this topic, yeah, yeah. I, um, actually, you know, we talked uh, quite a bit about the term function, I think, uh, today. So there's a paper um, called The Concept of Function in Behavior Analysis, I believe. And it was, um, I think people could find it online if they put the concept of function in behavior analysis. And I think it uh, was published in the Mexican Journal of Behavior Analysis, maybe in 2011. It's a very relevant, it really gets at this whole issue of the concept of function. And I think that we've danced around it quite a bit in this, um, in this interview today. And um, another one, there's, if, if anyone was interested in more on kind of, um, kind of the processes involved in, in interpersonal relationships and this kind of idea of observing what someone is thinking or kind of noticing what someone is thinking as it not being something totally private to someone. Um, it, as there's a paper on interpersonal closeness and conflict. Um, and I think that's in the International Journal of Psychology and Psychological Therapy. Both of those I should be available online if someone were to Google the titles or any other browser. I shouldn't just say Google. <laughs> yeah, this podcast is not sponsored by Google. I want to point out. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for those resources. Any final thoughts on the topic while we've got you? No, this has been great. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I think we got to talk about some issues that I think are important. I hope helpful to um, folks who listen to the podcast. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. All right. Please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use and to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bad papers that we should review. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Perrin. 
And thank you to Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast. 